You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. point in in Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, if I could just briefly try to catch us up to speed, recognizing that perhaps there are some who are here for, for the first time this morning. Paul, up to this point, has passionately defended his uh, both his apostolic authority and the authenticity of his message through the, the detailing of his conversion and calling, as well as the earliest years following his experience on the Damascus Road. Two in the earliest parts of this letter expressing astonishment that the Galatians are turning to a different gospel. The general argument being that some were insisting that the Galatian Gentiles be circumcised and submit to the Mosaic law in order to have right legal standing with God and in order to be counted among the true people of God. Paul declaring that there is no other gospel, that any distortion of the gospel is no gospel, that anyone who would preach a different gospel stands accursed Paul helping us to see in chapter 2, both through Titus and Peter, what it means to live in accordance with this one true gospel. In Titus's case, in not adding circumcision to faith in Christ. Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile who genuinely loved and trusted in Jesus and had an effective, fruitful ministry alongside the Apostle Paul. Proof that God was indeed at work among the Gentiles, and with that, that circumcision was not necessary to be counted among God's people. In Peter's case, the hypocrisy of treating Gentile believers as inferior for not being Jewish enough in their keeping of dietary laws when a crowd of Judaizers came to town. Peter's conduct out of step with the truth of the gospel so that he was unsaying in conduct what he was saying in doctrine which Paul called out as condemnable hypocrisy. Paul closing out chapter two with the good news of justification by faith, uh, grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. The good news that, that God declares guilty sinners righteous in his sight as a gift of grace and it's a gift of forgiveness and right legal standing before God that we receive by faith. Faith in the crucified and risen Jesus At the moment of our conversion, justification, an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as pardon and Jesus' righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight so that when we receive Jesus by faith, his righteousness counts for us as if you and I, sinners that we are, had lived the righteous life that God demands. Which Paul continues to tease out even more in chapter 3. He again rebukes the Galatians for lending their itching ears to a distortion of the gospel. Having received the spirit, not by works of the law, but by uh, hearing with faith. Tempted to continue the Christian life, they were not by spirit-reliant faith in God, but self-reliant works of the law. Unlike Abraham, Paul says, the man of faith whom God promised to bless that he might be a blessing to the nations. And Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Meaning that by faith, God conferred righteous standing upon Abraham just as God does with any sinner who turns to Christ in faith. 
Paul declaring in chapter 3 that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and who enjoy the blessings promised to Abraham and his offspring. As opposed to those who rely on works of the law, chapter 3, verse 10, and stand accursed for failing to abide by all things written in the book of the law. The law itself, Paul says, given not to replace the promise of Abraham, but to quicken the promise. The law for Israel was both a warden and a schoolmaster. That is until Jesus came. As a warden, chapter 3, verse 22, imprisoning everything under sin. Sin slavishly ruling over Israel and provoking the Israelites to sin increasingly. The law too, a, a tutor or a schoolmaster. In Paul's day, more than a teacher, a disciplinarian, a servant of the family responsible for training up the children. In ancient drawings, such a person shown with a rod in hand meant to keep the children in line. The false teachers in Galatia, they were, they were insisting on circumcision, failing to see that such a ceremonial law was never intended to be permanent. So that in one sense, Paul closes chapter 3, highlighting the temporary role of the law, which functioned in certain ways as a guardian until Jesus came. Which is an important note, because Paul's going to continue that thinking as we move here into chapter 4, as he further unpacks what it means to live as Abraham's offspring by faith in Christ, heirs according to promise. In contrast to those who were arguing that to receive the blessings of Abraham, a Gentile had to become a Jew, so to speak, through circumcision. Did you pick up chapter 4? Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Here Paul begins chapter 4, building on the imagery of, of the law as a guardian, a tutor, or schoolmaster, which is what the, the language of guardian means in the original Greek. Again, in Paul's day, more than a teacher, a, a disciplinarian, a servant of the family responsible for the training up of the children. Paul here declaring that a child who has an inheritance awaiting is no different than a slave until the day uh, the inheritance is actually bestowed. Until that day, under guardians and trustees, that is until the day the father decides that the child has reached maturity. An analogy that Paul connects with the experience of, of Israel in the days prior to the coming of Christ. And which uh, he, he will too connect with the enslavement uh, to idols which the Gentiles experienced before coming to faith in Christ. He goes on in verse 3. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In order to, to understand what Paul's saying, uh, we have to understand something of what he means by the elementary principles of the world. That phrase itself from the, the Greek word uh, stoikeion, which carries with it a, a number of possible meanings. It can, it can refer to the basic elements of of earth, air, water, and fire. Two, it can refer to the, the basic fundamentals of Christianity. But in the case of, of Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, I don't think either uses of, the, of, of that term are what Paul means. In fact, he's gonna go on to give us a, a clue in verses eight through 10 as to, as to what he means in the use of that kind of language, which we'll explore more deeply a week from now. It seems as though 
Paul is using the language of the elementary principles of the world to describe here the religious ceremonial practice of both Jews and Gentiles, both with their ritual. For the Jews, the, the ceremonial practice of the law of Moses, the law under which Israel was imprisoned until the coming of Christ, including verse 10, Paul will go on to say, the observance of certain days and months and seasons and years. For the Gentiles, the ceremonial practice of pagan ritual, which had imprisoned them prior to the freedom they found in trusting Jesus. Enslaved, the Gentiles were, verse 8, to those that by nature are not gods. Both Jew and Gentile, enslaved in their own unique ways. One to the law of Moses, the other to pagan idolatry and ritual. Paul's concern And we'll pick this up next week, being that the Galatian believers were trading one form of enslavement for another. Freed from pagan idolatry and ritual, the pagan temples and all of their practices only to be enslaved to the law of Moses. Saw it a lot growing up in the American South. Younger brothers, prodigals rescued in only to be enslaved to the legalism of the church. There's no way to live. Paul goes on to say in verse four, he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When the fullness of time had come, Paul says, that language emphasizing the the realization of God's redemptive promises, the date of verse two, the bestowal of the promised inheritance set by the Father. As Jesus himself declared in the early days of his public ministry, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, the only one through whom sinners might receive the promised inheritance. Born of woman, Paul says, highlighting the full humanity of Jesus, his death able to atone for the sin of humans whose nature he shares. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Not only the seed of Abraham, but the new Israel who succeeded where Israel failed, who succeeded where we all fail in living a life of perfect sinless obedience, that he might redeem us, Paul says, from sin's curse by becoming a curse for us. Redemption, meaning that that Jesus came, that those in the shackles of, of sin might find life in the sweetness of freedom. For some, freedom from imprisonment under the law, For others, freedom from the enslaving power of idols. But the imagery associated with what Paul is laying out here is actually even more wondrous. The word translated redeem is from the Greek word uh, exagorazo. It can be translated to redeem or it can be translated to buy out of the marketplace. I'm reminded of the story of Hosea. Two, a story of God's redeeming love. A story of a prophet called to marry an adulterous woman knowing that she would be unfaithful and would disgrace him. 
God's call on Hosea's life to pursue her anyway. A picture of God's faithfulness to Israel, even in the midst of her unfaithfulness to God. As the story goes, many of you know it, Hosea marries a woman by the name of Gomer, and she does exactly what God said she would do. She's unfaithful to her husband, runs off with another man, a man incapable of caring for her like Hosea. And God calls Hosea to do the seemingly impossible, to care for his wayward wife as she lies in the arms of another man. And he does just that, the seemingly impossible. Until one day, as the story goes, Gomer ends up on the auction block as a slave. Many believing due to the death of her lover having left her without provision. A moment of great embarrassment and shame for her. As we know, according to the the writings of antiquity, that slaves in that day were sold naked. So that she was stripped bare in the public marketplace, man after man, placing his bid. Meanwhile, God commands Hosea to go down to the marketplace and buy back his wife. Not so that he could hurt her or enslave her himself, so that he could show her his never-ending love. You can just picture Hosea clothing his wife in the midst of her nakedness and shame, walking her away from, from this crowd of vulgar, crass onlookers and declaring his undying love for his bride. That's redemption. It's not just that we've been set free, but that we've been set free at great cost. Jesus having entered the marketplace of sin that he might buy us at the cost of his own blood. In the words of one pastor and writer, so that we might be set free in that glorious liberty which pertains to the children of God. Redeemed, Paul says, verse five, that we might receive adoption as sons. Which perhaps some of your Bibles have translated as sons and daughters or children of God. And yet, most scholars agree that that such translations, though perhaps well-meaning, lose the significance of what Paul's actually declaring here. Listen to the language that God uses in describing Israel in the days of both Moses and Hosea. In the days of Moses, Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23 Then you shall say to Pharaoh, this is God speaking to Moses, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Or Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Israel, I called my son. What Paul's declaring here in Galatians chapter 4 is that sonship is not just for Jew, but Gentile. For anyone who puts their faith in Jesus. Similarly, as it pertains to gender, the inheritance throughout much of redemptive history was reserved for sons, not daughters. So that Paul's use of the language of sons is not chauvinistic, in fact, quite the opposite. What Paul is declaring is that the rights and privileges of sonship, the inheritance, are for all who belong to Christ, both male and female, Jew and Gentile. All recipients of the rights and privileges of sonship, heirs according to promise. Adopted. 
We who, Ephesians 2, were once children of wrath and sons of disobedience, now members of God's forever family through faith in Christ. I shared this, I think, once before. Maybe it's a little early for Christmas stories, but Christmas of 1986. I opened all the presents, so I thought. Some of you have had a similar experience in your childhood or perhaps have done this with your kids at some point along the way. I was playing with all the gifts. My mom gave it a few minutes and then came back around and said, what's, what's that behind the tree? <laughs> Ralphie, Red Rider, BB gun kind of play strategy. And I went and I saw the one last box and pulled it out and had my name on it, opened it up, was a Nintendo Entertainment System, complete with Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt, the gun, the whole nine yards. And I lost my ever-loving mind. Wasn't sure I was going to get it. I didn't have an expectation that I was going to receive it. And then there it was in front of me. That, that NES, that Nintendo Entertainment System, the Christmas of 1986, that was icing on the cake. It wasn't a gift of necessity, but it was a sweet one. That's what the gift of adoption is like. Unlike some of the other glorious gifts of redemption in Christ. Without the experience of the new birth, we remain dead in our sins, making regeneration a gift of necessity as it pertains to our salvation. Without the position of right legal standing before God, we remain guilty sinners, making justification a gift of necessity as it pertains to our salvation. Not so with the gift of adoption. God did not have to make us his children in order to rescue us from our sins. He could have given us the gift of regeneration, the new birth, without adopting us into his family. He could have given us the gift of justification, right legal standing before him without making us his kids. He could have determined that we solely relate to him as citizens in relationship to a king and that we relate to each other as one citizen would relate to another. And that's surely true as we are citizens who have been brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son. But God went further than that. He invited us to look one more time behind the tree, giving us the gift of adoption, embracing us as his children in Christ Jesus, the lavish grace of God towards sinners. It's why John would say, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And with that gift, the many blessings of what it means to be adopted into God's family. That we who are in Christ can relate to God as our heavenly father. The, the double blessing being that God not only sent his son into the world, but that he sends his spirit into the hearts of his redeemed. You think of it this way, the sending of Christ to secure our status as children of God. The sending of the spirit that we might experience it. The spirit who enables us to shout with fullness of heart, verse, verse six, God is my Abba, my father, and I his blessed child. The word Abba, is an Aramaic term. 
which at first glance might seem strange in a Greek written letter. How did that get in there? Why use such a term? Well, it's because the term, it's the term Jesus himself used when talking to the Father. Meaning that we can come to the Father as Jesus himself did. A father who loves us with a love that runs deeper than we could ever dare dream. A father who cares for us more than the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, Matthew chapter six. A father who delights in us, who rejoices over us with gladness and exults over us with loud singing, Zephaniah three seventeen. A father who graciously disciplines us, Hebrews 12, because he loves us as his children and is committed to our good. A father who has stored up an inheritance for us, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading for we who belong to him, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. And with these many blessings, the gift of a sibling relationship with fellow believers, not simply citizens of a kingdom, but eternally bonded brothers and sisters in Christ, members of a family, a forever family, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Bought out of the marketplace of sin by the precious blood of Christ, more than that, granted the rights, privileges, and blessings of sons and heirs. (laughs) As Paul will go on to ask the Galatians, how could we ever go back? How could we possibly turn to a different gospel? What's better than this? Having obtained what the law could never give, having obtained what the most promising of idols could never give. Children of God filled with the spirit of Christ. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says it, all those that are justified, God vouchsafes in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. So I would ask this morning, have you repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness, for the redemption, for the adoption that can only be found in him? And if so, I mean, what else is there to do but sing of the goodness, the glory, and the grace of God in Christ? And so that's what we're gonna do in a together way. And I just encourage you, as you do, as you sing, to hear the voices around you and to recognize these are not just citizens and co-heirs. These are brothers and sisters. This is a family gathering. We get to go before our Abba because of what Jesus has done for us. Two, get to receive of the Lord's Supper. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you not to partake of the bread and the cup, but that your next step would be one of repentance and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are Christian, as many of you know, we take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and we dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. 
There are communion tables to the right and left of the stage. There's a gluten-free table in the back corner there. As you prepare to receive of those elements, which you're welcome to do at any point between now and the end of our service over these last couple songs, I just encourage you to go back to the story of Hosea and to see that story as foreshadowing the coming of Christ who would, who would purchase a bride for himself at the cost of his own blood, rescuing us out of our sin, out of our shame, out of that marketplace, freeing us from those shackles and saying more than that, sons, daughters, inheritors of the promise. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.